0: Hello and good evening. Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club live podcast with author Gavin McRae, held in association with the Irish Writers' Centre here in Parnell Square in Dublin. I'm Laura Slattery and I'm very pleased that our latest Irish Times Book Club title is Gavin's acclaimed debut novel, Mrs. Engels. Published by Scribe Books and long for both the Guardian First Book Award and the Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction, Mrs. Engels is the story of Lizzie Burns, a poor worker from the Irish slums of Manchester who, like her sister Mary before her, becomes the lover of Friedrich Engels, co-founder of Marxist theory. Not very much is known about Lizzie Burns, but to tell us all about how he brought this Irish woman to the page, please welcome Gavin McRae. So Gavin, who was the Mrs. Engels? Of your title
1: well i suppose when i talk about mrs engels or i talk about lizzie i talk about my fictional creation she's really the only one that i can claim to know and i'm not really sure if i know her either but um the what's called the real lizzie burns or if people ask me you know you've written a novel who was the real lizzie burns and the real lizzie burns was (coughs) just a few traces in the historical record of, of a woman who was mentioned in the letters between Marx and Engels and in the letters of the Marx family. And nothing more than that. She's, she's kind of a ghost in the record.
0: And this is because she, she wasn't literate, so she, there's no letters.
1: That's right. She, she was illiterate, so she left no diaries or letters, letters of her own, so she has no, no historical weight, no, no biographies have even written about her or...
0: And so, was that a challenge for you, or was it in fact an opportunity to create um, the fictionalised Lizzie Burns that we have in the book?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, when I came across her name, um, I was immediately interested. I mean, it piqued my interest. And when I when I found out that there was nothing known about her, I knew that there was something to be done with this. I couldn't leave it alone. You know, I thought it was something really interesting. There was, um, I suppose, it was an opportunity to explore. A number of kind of contradictions, conflicts and emotional landscapes and um, kind of three dislocations in particular drew me to this particular story. Um, One was the kind of the geographical or the the ideas of nationality which was here was a woman who was born in Manchester but into the Irish slums uh, to Irish parents so she would have identified as Irish but um, you know,
0: there was kind of hierarchies of Irishness is there right, in there Manchester been, at the time.
1: The Irish would have been spoken. She would have been living in a slum, so she would have, you know, identified as Irish. But having never been in Ireland, it would it would have been a kind of a conflicted space, you know. And then, of course, she moves from Manchester with Engels to to London. as the first time she's ever left Manchester, so there's all the, that dislocation of geography. And then there's of course the dis, dislocation of class, where. This is, she's a poor woman and she's in a relationship with a wealthy man who also happens to be one of the founding you know, theorists of, of communism.
0: So, I mean, Engels had an interest in Ireland. Did, did he get that through the Burns sisters? Um, because well, before Lizzie there was Mary.
1: Well, Engels didn't have an interest in, in Ireland before Lizzie in the sense that he, he, himself and Marx were internationalists. I mean, they saw capitalism as something that was global. And in order to overcome capitalism, it needed a global revolution, and, and nationalism was a kind of selfishness. So what workers should be doing is working together transnationally, and if you were a nationalist, then you were, you know, denying that. So they didn't have any time for nationalism at all. The one exception being being Ireland. They had a lot of affinity for Ireland and, um, and had a lot of sympathy for the independence movement there. And, and, I, I can only imagine that it was through Lizzie, Lizzie and Mary's influence.
0: So uh, the book sort of begins, as you say, with Lizzie um, moving to London uh, with Friedrich Engels. And he's moved there to be closer to, to Karl Marx. So that, that's the events of the 1870s, are, of course, kind of uh, were crucial. We see that through Lizzie's eyes, uh, but also her entire her life. It, the book is really about her life.
1: I knew immediately it had to be a first-person voice. I mean, that was the first decision I made. Um, and that was a decision that I was absolutely sure about from the beginning, and I knew it would never change. Um, when, I suppose it was, you know, it's an aesthetic choice. As a writer, I'm really interested in the illusion of mind, you know, creating the illusion of mind on the page. But I suppose it was also a political choice in the sense that in the um, theories of Marx and Engels, often, particularly in Engels' work, his most famous work, The Condition of the Working Class in England, the working classes themselves don't really speak. He, he uses this expression, let us hear, let us hear, let us hear, to introduce middle-class observers. So he will say something like, let us hear from a doctor who'll tell us how awful the conditions were, or let us hear from this town planner who'll tell us how badly Manchester was planned. And so I knew that she had to speak for herself in, in the book and that if, if I had stepped outside of her, and created the illusion of illusion of another narrative voice outside of her, it would have been I don't know, not doing her justice. But of course at the same time when I speak of, you know, writing from Lizzie's perspective, I'm speaking about an illusion because if Lizzie can be said to be anybody, she she has to be me. I mean she can't be anyone else but me, so
0: So tell us about the sort of, you know, how you created that voice, because, I mean, um, the reviews and the praise for this book uh, has has focused on the creation of of Lizzie's voice. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, for example, describes it as an unusual and wholly convincing voice. So so how did you get into character?
1: Um, Well, her voice is entirely artificial. (laughs) 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 In the sense that I... I I researched a certain vocabulary and I use a certain vocabulary. Um, so I researched nineteenth-century literature. I put myself on a strict diet of nineteenth-century literature, um, biography, the letters. There was lots of really nice vocabulary in the Marx Engels letters, and then I put that to use. I put a kind of s- a slightly different vocabulary for her thoughts and her dialogue, and then just mixed that up and, and used it. Um, it's. I, creating it felt like a kind of like a a performance. You know, it was like I wasn't pretending to be her. I was just being me in another way. That's how it felt. That's how it felt. It was. I didn't feel that I was being. When I talk about her, it's very hard for me to say what's me and what's her in in the book. So I just felt like a performance. Okay.
0: Um. Would you like to read maybe a short extract
1: from the book? Yeah. Absolutely.
0: I think this is the the opening section.
1: Yeah, the opening section is um, Lizzie's Manifesto. This is where she kind of sets out um, her view of the world. And I suppose the novel is an exploration of to the extent to which her life conforms with or contradicts this, this manifesto. No one understands men better than the women they don't marry. And my own opinion, but known only to God, is that the difference between one man and another doesn't amount to much. It's no matter what line he's in or which ideas he follows, whether he's sweet-tempered or ready-witted, a dab at one business or the next, for there isn't so much to any of that, and you won't find a man that hasn't something against him. What matters over and above the contents of his character, what makes the difference between sad and happy straits, for she who must put her life in his keeping, is the mint that jingles in his pockets. In The Final Reckoning, the good and the bad come to an even knot, and the only thing left to recommend him is his money. Young lasses, yet afflicted with strong feeling and seeking a likely subject for a tender passion, will say that money has no place in their thoughts. They make exceptions of themselves and pass on good matches, for they believe that you must feel a thing and that this thing can be pure only if it's a poor figure it's felt for. To such lasses I says, take warning. This is a changing world. We don't know today what will happen tomorrow, and the man you go with will decide where you're put, whether it's on the top or on the bottom or where. The fine feelings love will bring won't match the volume of problems a pauper will create. Odds are the handsome fellow you go spoony on will turn out to be a bad bargain, white-livered and empty of morals. The gospel grinder is sure to have his own blameworthy past and will drag you to the dogs. The flash charmer will come to act the tightwad, insisting you live on naught a year. The clever wit will loiter away his hours, believing others must provide his income. And the happiness you anticipated will never turn to the happiness enjoyed. There'll always be something wanting. Better, the only honest way, is to put away your hopes of private feeling and search out the company of a man with means. A man who knows the value of brass and is easy enough with it. Make your worth felt to him. Woo his protection as he woos your affections in the good way of business. And the reward will be comfort and ease. And there's naught low or small in that. Is it of any consequence that he isn't a looker or a rare mind or a fancy poet as long as he's his own man and is improving you? This must be calculated on. Love is a bygone idea, centuries worn. There's things we can go without and love's among them. Bread in a warm hearth or not. Is it any wonder there's heaps of ladies, real ladies, biding to marry the first decent man who offers him 500 a year? Aye, ah, young flowers, don't be left behind on the used-up shelf. If you must yearn for things, let those things be feelings, and let your yearning be done in a first-class carriage like this one, rather than in, the w- in one of those reeking compartments down back, where you'll be on your feet all day and exposed to the winds and forever stunned by the difficulty of your life. Establish yourself in a decent situation, and put away what you can, that, please God, one day you may need no man's help. Take it and be content. Then you'll journey well."
0: Well, there are so many things I want to pick up on, just on those first two pages of the book. Uh, the first is um, the opening sentence, uh, no one understands men better than the women they don't marry. I think is absolute cracker of an opening sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, did that was that there at the beginning, or at what point did you decide that? That was that's, quite early, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, that was quite early, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um, just then, in terms of vocabulary, I mean, it's just it's just a great. Use of words throughout, but um, go spoony, go spoony on them, ma- on a man. Yeah. what's that mean?
1: <laughs> Just go, go mental, go nuts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah,
0: I might be familiar with that as well.
1: Uh, it's it's strange to hear my my own voice reading Lizzie because it's it's not Lizzie I hear when I when I read it. So it's kind of a.
0: It's a version of Lizzie, or, or well, no, it's
1: because when I hear in my head, it's not the this voice that's speaking. <laughs> in, so it's interesting. <laughs>
0: Um, and I suppose just the, the general point that you've introduced straight away there is that she's quite um, she's mistrusting in a way, and she's cynical a, a, in, about love in a way that perhaps her sister, uh, the fictionalised version of Mary Burns, um, isn't. This is uh, Friedrich's first lover in, in, in Manchester, who um, he the way in the book, you know, they seem to have had a very loving, close relationship, yeah. but he kept her hidden in a way that he didn't keep. Lizzie yeah. Hidden. So in London, they did live together and they were known to live together, although they weren't actually married at that point.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the Mary for me is kind of almost my favourite character, and she, for me, is the kind of emotion, emotional centre of the novel. Um, without her, Lizzie's judgments would have been entirely directed towards Frederick, and so she challenges Frederick for a kind of place in in Lizzie's focus. And as you you said, Frederick had a relationship with Mary, and when she died, he had a relationship with Lizzie. So Lizzie kind of gets what Mary never got. Mary, I mean in my fictional world. Mary um, entered the relationship knowing, very aware of Engels' principles and predilections. He was against monogamy, no interest in traditional family life, had no interest in marriage against it on principle but yet as their relationship developed Mary kind of harboured these fantasies of a kind of pure more nourishing love that would come about if when Frederick kind of lives his like, forgets his independent life and finally asks him, her to marry him but she dies before that happens and so Lizzie has been witness to all of this and has a much more practical approach to her relationship with, with, with Frederick, but of course that again is made more complex and overturned as, as her relationship develops. But the the book itself is a an exploration of what happens when you get what you want, or when you get what other people want.
0: She wants Liz, uh, Mary to be p- proud of her, or she expresses that uh, yeah. emotion at one point. Yeah. But we don't. We, maybe it's not what she wants, or she doesn't seem to. Um, She seems to have conflicts all the way through, um, including with all the the other Irish uh, characters in the book that also um, are in in London. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about, because she's risen in the world to the point where she has servants, um, but yet the servants seem very well aware, and she's well aware that they're aware, that she's come from pretty much the same sort of class as them you know so was that tell us, tell us about what kind of research you did about that at the time
1: oh right yeah um, the the domestic space and the and the the servants and all of that was where most of my research went I mean the, the I took about a maybe a year to research and the vast majority was the Victorian domestic space um, And setting limits for what a particular person would do in a series of circumstances in a particular room at a particular Mm -hmm. time—that's what that's what the research felt like. Like, if if you put a woman here in this room, what objects would she be engaging with? And if someone said something to her, what would be outrageous and what would be expected for what would be a kind of expected behaviour and what would be outrageous behaviour?
0: And this is kind of alien for Lizzie at the start of the book that she's um, the hospitality with the Marx family, and it's it's not something that comes naturally to her.
1: No, she's very uncomfortable. So she's moving obviously up the the social scale very quickly, Um, and although she has no, she doesn't (laughs) very much doesn't go want to go back to what she's left behind. She's clearly uncomfortable with. The authority that's required to have servants, and and she flip flops between between being very authoritative and then kind of currying favor, and so yeah, she's quite uncomfortable with that.
0: And it's quite interesting. At one point, um, you mentioned that Spiv, who's one of the maids, um, that she can read and write so mm. in a way. She's she's more educated than right. you know her mistress.
1: They become her kind of uh, eyes. In years, in a way, she asks him to read letters and to do things in that way. Yeah.
0: So, um, I mean, through Lizzie, then we learn about uh, Engels and, and Marx and the politics of the period. So, how did you decide upon sort of the balance between that story and sort of Lizzie's own emotional core?
1: When you do research, I think anyone who does kind of what I mean by research, I'm talking about kind of academic research. I think every every book has research to look around. Is to research to listen to people in your social circle is to research, or to troll through Twitter looking for a certain energy vibe. That's research, you know. But what we're, I'm talking about academic research, and when you do a lot of it, um, the temptation is to kind of uh, enact it or activate it at every opportunity, and so I had to work really hard to keep marks and angles where I wanted them to be, which was at you know, a se- secondary characters, particularly, say, sec- in the sex scenes. If, if I felt Frederick was taking over, I had to really come back and, make, and remember this was Lizzie's sex scene or, you know, it I always had to remain with her. So it meant what I really wanted to achieve was, you know, a really massive fictional character out of a, a ghost in the record and to, and to reduce Marx and Engels right down to, to, small, to smaller characters.
0: So I mean can you just tell us a little bit more maybe about how how does, how Lizzie views her Irishness then uh, it's, it's it's it does seem to be a big part of her but as you were saying earlier it's it's a it's a, it's a particular type of of relationship she has with Ireland that where she's she's never been to Ireland and yeah. uh, she isn't in Manchester anymore and she has moved out of that class as well yeah.
1: um before she dies she goes to Ireland once with Frederick um it's not It's not in the book, I didn't, I didn't explore that, but she, it was, it was it's interesting that she needed Frederick to have a relationship with Ireland and he needed her to have a relationship with Ireland. Um, I kind of used the fictional character of Moss to kind of counterbalance... You know, Moss kind of represents Irishness. He's he seems to have been born in Ireland, and he's a nationalist, and he seems to represent a kind of stronger sense of Ireland for Lizzie. Whereas Lizzie's Irishness is much more contested and much more um, insecure. And Moss doesn't
0: necessarily understand Lizzie how she you know the how she views Irishness or he's no, he's more <laughs>
1: yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and the, they're kind of two competing kind of belief systems. Lizzie's living with a communist and kind of has had had an affair with a nationalist and I, I was playing with those kinds of, you know, not to say that these two belief systems are interchangeable because I think belief systems have their own consequences, but just that they're they were competing, you know, they were competing for for her attention and for her love and for. Her, you
0: know. And early on in the book, there's a beautiful misunderstanding about the uh, the the use of the word grand, how the Irish use the word grand. And Engels has been taught that it means nothing more than, than middling or just kind of ordinary. And Lizzie uses it to describe their beautiful new house in Primrose, Primrose Hill in London. Uh, and he he's sort of offended by that, or he's disappointed that she only thinks it's grand. Right. But in fact, she's not using it that way in yes, that instance. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> um, it's actually it's actually just a it's a classic misunderstanding about language I Line. guess yeah. but in, uh, the vocabulary of the book um, you know you've words like, like healthful and, and idlement and, and, and things like even things like salve uh, that maybe have fallen out of use uh, now but we all know what they mean they all fit with the period I mean is that what you were kind of aiming to include from the, from the time in, in the book
1: I don't think any, any 19th century person would recognise anything that happens in this book. I mean, you know, they wouldn't rec- see themselves in the vocabulary that I've used. I've used a 19th century vocabulary, but, it, but it's, you know, it's an artifice. It's, like, it's, 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 a, it's a show, it's a performance. But the, I, I, worked, I worked quite hard. You know, the first draft was much denser. It was much more flowery. Was much more showing off. I think big v-
0: Victoriana, was, Victorian yeah. and, uh,
1: <laughs> frilly, you know, like big Victorian curtains, and then I had to just. Is that
0: because uh, some of that has become cliche and? Yeah, I of, just felt know. it
1: was a little bit too much, and yeah. then I had to, pu- and and probably I feel some of it's still too much, but I, the, um, I had to comb through it and and and, and take some of that out.
0: So I suppose I just want to ask you now a little bit about you know where and and, and when and how you came to to write this novel because it, it is your first novel. Um, so you, you did an MA at the University of East Anglia and yeah. then there was a, you won a scholarship and it was part of a a, a PhD yeah, yeah. Uh, with the university. So. Yeah. Uh, so what was your sort of routine? Routine, or how and how, how long did it take to, to write to write the book? The write book. Yeah.
1: Um, during my MA in UEA, I wasn't writing this. I was writing other other things. Um, I like other people who, who go to UEA. I'm not sure if um, your listeners are familiar with it. It's a, an MA in creative writing in in Norwich, um, and um, like a lot of people who go into UEA, you can't. Uh, you, I came with a project thinking by the end of the year this would not only be finished but published and you know and by Christmas most of us had thrown all of that into the bin because we realized that this was a year to experiment to uh, try new things uh, maybe go into territory that we weren't familiar with um, brought on by envy of your classmates and uh, comp- See, I think
0: that must be really hard to be surrounded by people They're kind of distracting almost uh,
1: yeah their- it, was. it was, it's a really interesting experience and I, as expensive as it is and mm. it, I would recommend it to anybody just for that, you're not taught anything but you are shown what your contemporaries are doing and you're put through the mill you know, you're li- every week your work is critiqued and there are lots of voices telling you lots of things. <clears throat> and by the end of the year, everyone is sick of the voices and they go off and do their own things. But that's part of the process, you know. And it makes, I think, when you publish and the voices in newspapers or, or people telling you what they think, much easier because there's nothing they can tell you you haven't, you haven't heard already. and had your little cry and you know <laughs> so there's no, there's no there's nothing people can say so yeah it toughens you up
0: well they're all wrong anyway because you just want you write the book that you want to write I presume, <laughs> I presume.
1: well they're right for them i suppose they're, yeah. and they're looking for the book they want to read so yeah yeah, yeah.
0: so um because you're, you're from Dublin, yep. but you don't live in Dublin. You no. y- you divide your time between... Um, <laughs>
1: technically, I divide my time between the UK and Spain. Spain,
0: yeah. but you've been in Spain lately. <laughs>
1: yeah, for quite a while, yeah.
0: Uh, is, that, is, is living in Spain conducive to... For uh, me, it is, yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Being away, yeah, definitely, yeah.
0: So, I mean, do you write every day?
1: Write or research every day, yeah.
0: Mrs. Engels was published in hardback uh, last year and it's just come out in paperback, but you are, you are working on your next project um, now. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. Um, so uh, my next project is about a theatre family, an entirely fictional theatre family in London, whose destiny becomes, or whose fate becomes, intertwined with that of the, um, the, the wife of Mao Zedong, um, who was an actress? Um, it's very different in the sense that I am writing in the third person in this one, and that the 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 <coughs> communist figure, the Mao figure, feels like a kind of an external god, whereas here there was a an I an an eye voice at the very centre. But um, yeah, so the working title is the Sisters Mao, but I'm not sure if that will survive.
0: Um, but it is there is a thematic
1: link then the communism is the thematic link is is that yeah it's yeah it is the thematic link i've i've opened a can of worms that i'm not ready to close yet and the, the for me it's really not communism in itself in the sense that i'm not interested i am interested but it's not so much i'm interested in what communist theory is or what communism is it's really i'm more interested in um the belief systems and Pe- people in particular who believe they know what's best for them and the world and i think that's a fascinating area to explore like the differences between trying to reconcile our thoughts and reality and, and I, that's what i'm interested in and, and communism gives us a really gives us an example of what happens when when we try to uh, make our make our thoughts reality <laughs>
0: Um, because the, you you you're thinking of another another a third book, uh, Would yeah, that also that's, share. It's
1: more in the distance, but yeah, I'm thinking of like a post-communist, post-communist something in kind of Eastern Europe.
0: Was there anything about uh, when you know before you started writing the novel, um, between then and and now, you know, is there anything that surprised you about the process?
1: What surprised me, I think, was how. I surprised myself in, in how, how, I, how determined I became to, to, to do it. it. It was like I entered a little cave, and my, my family is here tonight, they'll tell you. Just close the doors. And I was surprised at how I determined I became to finish this voice and to finish this book. Um, I think that was the most surprising thing. I, I, I wondered whether I had it in me. And now I know I do. So that's probably what surprised me most.
0: The news that you're you're on the Walter Scott uh, Prize long list, that just came today. Um, so, I mean, I was just meant to ask you suppose, how important is it to be named on the, these lists to, to get recognition th- that way?
1: <laughs> it's kind of a double-edged sword because um, you'll see in the, pa- I mean, first of all, you'll see in the paperback you know, long-listed four. <laughs> if I was walking into a bookshop and I saw... <laughs> Long listed four, and then I saw shortlisted four I'd go, oh you know, oh, well I'll put that You know I'll go for the short listed one right so. my experience with prizes is the set, my second short listing, and um, you know you're 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 getting used to your little bourgeois poverty and you know and then someone dangles this prize is twenty five thousand sterling it, you know you this yeah. could be yours and even though i'll Tell the world that i haven 't even noticed the prize in my head i 've already spent, spent the money so <laughs> i'm sure'm not sure i 'm not, sure
0: not sure it's very healthy
1: for the writer i don 't know who yeah. I'm sure the publishers get great you know you don 't make the short list you don 't get anything i 'm not sure uh, should they be publishing short long lists. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah, I suppose the thing is, there's two. Then there's two uh, bites of publicity for the prize. For the prize.
1: <laughs> but the prize absolutely. But the for the rise the of the poor, authors. For four writers. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: yeah. But best of best of luck, best That's of luck totally with much. it anyway, because it is it's one of the uh, it's one of the big bigger prizes, the the financial prizes, prizes yeah, yeah. and it would make a, it would make a difference. Absolutely. Okay, I think we're going to wrap up the main part of our podcast now. Um. I just want to say that if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read Mrs. Engels yet, then please do. Um, Thank you to everybody in this live audience for coming to the event and to our sound engineer, J.J. Vernon, to Amy Heron and everybody in the Irish Writers' Centre for hosting us. Um, Just a little bit of book club housekeeping. The title we're discussing next month is another debut novel, um, The Glorious Heresies by Lisa McInerney. Um, But for now, a very special thanks to Gavin McRae you